Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1. In particular, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 18. And then also, if you have an extra ribbon or a piece of paper, you can put it back in Exodus 33 and 34 as we'll be looking back at that passage as well. We'll start, though, by talking about the new year. How many of you are excited about the a new year and a new you? <laughs> Raise your hand if you have thought about it and you have a couple of resolutions that you're going to make for this year. If you don't have a resolution, come to me after the service and I can tell you what your resolution ought to be. I know, I know most of you well enough to know that you aren't what you ought to be. You're supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> there you go. And, and if you don't know me well enough, you can always go to my wife and my kids, and they will tell you all the ways I am not, not what I ought to be. Um, interestingly enough, right, this time period is a time in which Americans, those who celebrate the new year and make these resolutions, will be honest with themselves in this. This is the one time of year people let, will admit they are not what they ought to be. And they do so by making a resolution. So a resolution is a subtle admission that you are not what you ought to be. That you should be something else. That you should be something better. That you should start doing things you're not doing. That you should stop doing things that you, sh- you have been doing. And so we are also reminded in this time by this, that admission that we are not what we ought to be of the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because in the incarnation, God becomes a man and shows us all what we should have been every moment of every day of our lives. Not just as an example, but to redeem us from the curse we had brought upon ourselves. I've got good news for you this morning. And that good news is that the Son of God took on flesh became a man, took on all that is entailed in humanity except for sin, and died on the cross for our sins, giving us eternal life and reconciliation with God. We'll look at this truth in these verses, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. We see this truth of the incarnation throughout the entire gospel, right? But in particular here in the first 18 verses, as John is in some ways summarizing the rest of the book for us. So let's look at our passage for this morning. John chapter 1, 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would now add your blessing to the reading and preaching of your holy word. Speak to us. Give us ears to hear that we would trust and obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verses 1 through 18 of the book of John is often called a prologue. 
It is a, a sort of introduction to the rest of the book. It is a summary of the concepts that will uh, be exposed throughout the rest of the book. It is not a detailed explanation of them, but he introduces these, these concepts and will then explore them in the life of Jesus in the rest of the book. In John 20, verse 31, we read uh, the purpose for which John wrote this account. He says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And in this book, in these 18 verses as well, we see the supremacy of Jesus as truly God, and we also see the eminence of Jesus as one who is truly human. So the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Jesus as one who is truly God, and then the the closeness of Jesus, the intimacy of Jesus as truly human. And in verses 14 to 18, we see how the incarnation of what John calls the Word reveals God more fully than ever before. John makes several allusions to Exodus 33 and 34 to show, I think in an ultimate way, that Jesus is not opposed to the law, but He's actually the fulfillment of the law. Some of those who would read John, some of those whom Jesus would uh, really offend would claim that they follow the law of God. They follow the Torah, but Jesus they saw as rejecting it. However, I think John here is showing that actually Jesus is a fulfillment of the law. And so to reject Jesus is ultimately to reject God's word, to reject all of God's law. But to embrace Jesus is to embrace the law of God and to embrace God himself. In the Son's incarnation, God's presence, His glory, His grace, His character are revealed in new and astounding ways. And because of this, we are enabled to know God more fully and to receive all the grace that He has for us in Jesus Christ. By God becoming a man, He has enabled us to know and enjoy Him more fully than if He had not. He could have perhaps chosen some other way to display his glory, but this is the way he chose. And we'll see the importance of it for us today as we look at this passage together. I want us to consider four, uh, four, four things that we now have because of the incarnation. Four things the incarnation gives us or brings to us. First, I want us to consider that the incarnation brings us a fuller realization of God's presence. A fuller realization of God's presence. So John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We'll leave uh, some of this for later concerning what does John mean by the Word. But for now, notice a few things about this Word, what John calls the Word. From the beginning of this passage Verses 1 and 2 and 3, we see the pre-existence of the Word. In the beginning was the Word. John says, this is the one I was talking about because He came before me. We know John was actually born before Jesus. And so John is pointing to His pre-existence. We also notice that the Word was present with God. And so there is a, a distinction between this Word and God the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. 
But further we see that this word is truly God. And the word was God. He is identified as the almighty creator, but he's also distinguished from the father. The word is the true light which came into the world. The word is the one who came to his own people, but was rejected by them. But those who did receive him have now become the children of God by the will of God. And this word, John says, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, God had appeared to his people before. Some images that come to your mind perhaps immediately would be God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. He appeared to his people through, through angels. It would be called the angel of the Lord appeared to his people. He appeared to his people in a pillar of cloud and of fire after the exodus. And in all of these ways, God condescended to his people. And I think that that pillar of cloud is the example John has in mind when he writes this. Look back to Exodus 33, verses 7 through 10. There we read, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. The tent and tabernacle throughout this passage is the same word used here in John 1.14. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, pitched his tent among us. Moses spoke to God in the pillar of smoke, face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But consider this, John and the other apostles spoke literally face to face with God. They actually saw his human face. And they were his friends. That God would dwell with his people at all is a miracle, is it not? That God, the holy God, the creator of heaven and earth, would dwell with a sinful and rebellious people? Yet in all these ways, God's presence was somewhat foreign and mysterious. A pillar of smoke coming down on a tent. A a bush that seemed to be burning but was not consumed. In all of these ways, you know, consider how, how can you have a relationship with a cloud? With a cloud of smoke or with... Uh, a, a pillar of fire. But in the incarnation, the Word became flesh. Not like a shell that His deity put on, but He really became human. Truly human. Truly God and truly man. The ultimate condescension. Taking on flesh and really the whole human experience. And He brings His presence to us in a whole new and astounding way. Think about how ordinary citizens love when their leader comes down out of the White House and walks among them. You may think of President Bush 
after 9-11, standing in the rubble with firefighters with a bullhorn, and he's shouting encouragement to the people. Or President Obama hugging a hurricane survival in New, survivor in New Jersey. Or President Trump greeting survivors and volunteers in Houston. There's something about seeing the President of the United States with ordinary citizens that appeals to us. Someone with such great power having compassion on someone who has little or no power. Their presence among the people gives hope and encouragement. But of course, each of these presidents are just men. They're ordinary men. None of them became something they weren't. Their condescension was very small. And then how ought we consider God, the King of heaven and earth, coming down, condescending, making His presence known among us, His creatures. St. Augustine says this. Consider this. This is such a beautiful quote. Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey. That truth might be accused of false, false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. If we're encouraged by the presence of a president when tragedy strikes, how much more comfort and encouragement ought we to receive because God himself has come down to save us from our sins. He didn't simply send a legion of angels to save us, to rescue us. He himself came to rescue us. What love is this? What condescension? What humility is this? All that we might know his presence among us in a new and intimate way. Now it's true that we don't get to see Jesus face to face here in this, in this life. But we do have a down payment that that will happen one day, don't we? The Holy Spirit of God living inside all who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God living inside you, brother and sister. You do have the presence of God. The scripture says that your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is present with you, inside you. And then consider what this means for us to live. To live in the presence of God himself. I'm reminded of a book called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And his thesis, his aim in life was to do everything from the smallest task of washing dishes to the, to the most excellent task of all, all for the glory of God and with a, a clear sense of the presence of God in those tasks. Think of yourself when you are at your absolute worst. Greed and envy, self-righteousness, looking down on someone else, lust, anger. Think of you when you don't want anyone else to see you because you would be so ashamed in that moment. And then recognize that God Almighty is present with you. How, How ought we to feel in that moment? How ought He to treat us in that moment when we are at our worst? 
where we know because of the incarnation, he does not treat us as we deserve. Instead of being filled with shame and condemnation, we are filled with his grace. And then we recognize that his presence with us is not one of judgment and condemnation, but one of peace and love and intimacy in the relationship with God. And then that gives a whole new meaning to our actions in daily life, doesn't it? Not that we walk around feeling guilty because God is present with us wherever we go, but because we want to please him in all that we do. We have a, a, the sense of his presence with us wherever we go, whatever we say, whatever we do, and we long to please him. We have a fuller realization of God's presence because of the incarnation. But we also have a fuller revelation of God's glory. John continues in verse 14. And we have seen his glory, the words glory, we have seen it. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory refers to a, uh, a brightness, a majesty, the excellence, the beauty of God, the shining brilliance of who He is. John says we have seen the glory of the Word. It is the glory of the only Son from the Father. They saw The apostles saw His glory in many ways. Think about the ways they saw the glory of the Word, Jesus Christ. In his preaching, he preached as one who had authority, like nothing anyone else had seen. He healed those who came to him, who were sick, who were lame, who were crippled. He spoke a word and they were well. They saw his glory when he calmed the storms and simply said, peace, be still. A few of them even saw his glory in the transfiguration when he stood there on the mount with Moses and Elijah. And they vanished from sight after the voice said, Behold, this is my son. Listen to him. He stood alone. They saw his radiant glory. It is a glory full of grace and truth. It is a glory full of undeserved favor. The truth of God and his faithfulness. And as we read this, we should think yet again back to Exodus. Consider what it says in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. Moses had said to God, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And God says to him, you can't see all of my glory, for no one can see me and live. And yet he does, he does condescend to Moses' request. In verse 5 of chapter 34, we read, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. As the glory of the Lord passes by, God declares his character. Perhaps what's even more prominent in that passage than seeing God's glory is this declaration of his character, of who he is. He is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that sounds a lot like full of grace and truth. Moses saw a glimpse of God's glory, but Jesus' disciples beheld his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Perhaps grace and truth, the, the grace and truth of God is most clearly seen, however, in not all of his, 
His healings and miracles. Those things that the, the crowds yearned for. Perhaps, however, it's most clearly seen in that which seems to lack any glory. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ on the cross. For isn't it there that we see most clearly His grace put on display for sinners? And the faithfulness of God who will keep His promises? Grace for undeserving sinners. Truth, the faithfulness of God in keeping all of His promises. Sometimes people think the God of the Old Testament is a God of law, not of grace. I just want this God of the New Testament. Forget all of the stuff back in that Old Testament. I want the God of grace in the New Testament. But we see in Exodus, God revealed Himself as a God of grace and truth from the very beginning. From the time He didn't kill Adam and Eve because of their sin, He has been a God of grace and truth. His glory is, however, more fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is, this is actually an offense to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. But His suffering and death on the cross for sinners, to us, who are His, who belong to Him, is the wisdom of God. It is a glory unlike anything else in the world. Now we're about to have... Great New Year's celebrations, right? Many of you maybe will tune in and watch the New Year's celebrations in New York. Maybe you're going to make a quick trip and, and go up there yourself tonight, right? Maybe you'll have special parties of your own. And everybody's looking forward to a new year and a new you. A glorious new year. They're thinking of resolu- resolutions they can make to make themselves better. They're looking forward t- to ways that they can make 2018, the best year yet. Glorious in so many ways. Right? In 2018, we will all be beautiful and happy like never before. That's what we're yearning for. That's what people are longing for. But we need to recognize there are different sorts of glory. There is a glory of beauty and power. A glory that dazzles the eyes and makes you yearn to be great. But there is also a glory of humility and service and sacrifice. We will see the glory of power and beauty and majesty one day, but it's not yet, brothers and sisters. In this age, God has called us to live in this different sort of glory. In this glory of humility. In this glory of a beaten and bloodied Christ to live in the glory of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. So I want you to consider this this moment in time, in what ways, first, in what ways are you being seduced by the, the glories of this world? The things that dazzle the eyes, the things that tempt you to power and greatness. It's as if you're reaching in the age to come and trying trying to pull it into this present age. It's not here yet. And then consider, in what ways are you actively pursuing these other glories? The glories of humility and service and sacrifice. Consider this for your job. It doesn't mean you don't seek promotions or to grow as a business or to, to, to be a better worker. But it means you pursue these glories that will last throughout all of eternity and will shine brightly for the glory of God. How can you become a servant. This is how you become great, right? 
How might you sacrifice for others in your workplace? Or children in your schools? Isn't it your desire to be seen as great and popular? Well, what if you took a different approach to it and decided, well, I want to become great in a different sort of way. I want to pursue a different sort of glory. The sort of glory none of my friends will appreciate. They'll think it's stupid. They'll think I'm a loser. But I'm going to pursue this sort of glory, humbling myself and serving the kid who's made fun of day in and day out. What kind of glories are you pursuing? The ones that everybody else around you is pursuing or these heavenly glories that God has for us here and now? You might look at some of your resolutions. Some of them might reflect what glories you're you're pursuing. Consider also then what resolutions you might make to pursue the glory of Christ. God has given us in the incarnation a fuller realization of God's presence and a fuller revelation of God's glory. We also see a fuller, we also receive a fuller measure of His grace. We have a fuller reception of God's grace because of the incarnation. Of His fullness, John says, we have all received and grace upon grace. In other words, Jesus doesn't simply display His grace. He bestows it. He offers us grace out of His own fullness. He is not depleted. His grace is not lessened by giving it away. It's not somehow made half empty because He gave it to us. Of His fullness, He gives grace upon grace. John says, Through Moses came the law, but through Jesus comes grace and truth. Now it's important for us to understand here that Jesus is coming, His incarnation and His life. He did not reject the law. It's not an abrogation of the law. Rather, it is a fulfillment of of the law. He fulfilled the law. The law is not bad. Right? Sometimes we get this impression. Law is bad, grace is good. But really the law is good in that it shows us the character of God. It shows us what is required of man. And it shows us our own sin. How far short we have fallen. Because we have, at every point in the law, we have failed. It demonstrates our own inability Jesus, however, demonstrates the goodness of the law when it is kept. It demonstrates his own ability to keep the law. For he himself is the fulfillment of the law. And this is where his grace comes from. His own merit enables him to give grace to sinners. It is because he came a human and perfectly fulfilled the law that he now can in turn distribute grace to us. For he took the punishment sinners deserved and he distributes his grace freely to all who come to him in faith even though we deserve punishment and condemnation. Abraham Davis of Fort Smith, Arkansas deserved the punishment that was coming to him. He had gotten drunk with one of his friends and as they talked about ISIS and terrorism, they had this bright idea of revenge and so they got in their car and drove to the Al-Salam Mosque in town where they vented their frustrations by vandalizing the building with racial slurs. But they didn't realize there would be video of the event. So it wasn't long before the news got out. Others recognized him. He knew it was him. So he turned himself into the police. His family was poor, so he couldn't afford the $1,200 or so for bail. 
But while he was in prison, he wrote a letter to the mosque and he was, uh, seemed to be genuinely sorry, sorrow, uh, sorry for his behavior. He apologized for it. His brother delivered the letter to them. And then what happened next was a matter of grace. The leaders of the mosque sent back word, we forgive you. And not only did they say the words, they backed it up by their behavior. They went to the authorities themselves. They went to the judge and the prosecutors and said, we don't want Abraham to receive the full measure of what he deserves. Please just let him only have a misdemeanor instead of a felony that will remain on his record for his whole life. He ended up getting the felony anyway. The judge and prosecutors thought they needed to set an example of him. Abraham would be on probation for three years. He couldn't get into any trouble during this time, and he'd have to make monthly payments to cover court costs of about $3,000. Or if he didn't pay, if he got into trouble, he'd have to serve six years of jail time. We started work getting minimum wage, but it would have taken ages to pay off his debt. But that's where the story gets even better. The mosque receives a donation of $3,000, and they knew right where to spend it. Those who were the victims of his crime paid off his debt in full. Not only did they say, we forgive you, they spent their own money to relieve him of his burden. And this news spread far and wide. An article about the story ran shortly after his, Abraham's family got an eviction notice. Donations from readers helped pay a security deposit and first month's rent. They bought him used furniture to set up the place. Someone paid off their electric bill. The grace just seemed to be piling up on top of this young man who did not deserve a bit of it. The image that I get is of sedimentary rock, which builds up layer upon layer over Uh, The course of many years, mud and dirt and sand are compressed. And if you make a dissection of it, you see these layers. It tells a history, right? You find details about the particular stone that was there from age to age. The particular layers give evidence of what took place. And it's as if Abraham was receiving grace upon grace, even though he deserved punishment. And I don't know what it was that caused these Muslims to respond in the way they did. But isn't it a great example to all of us? But it makes me think also of how God has lavished His grace upon us, undeserving sinners. Consider your own sins against God Himself and against fellow man. Things you have committed, things you have done against others, things you have even thought against others. Think about what you deserve because of your sin. What would we find if we could dissect your life and see the layers of the years of your life? What we should find is layers of sin, of greed, anger, of self-righteousness. And then what we should find is layers of consequences, of punishments that you deserve because of your sins. But for all those who are in Jesus Christ, what we actually find is layer upon layer of God's grace to you. On top of every layer of sin, you find a layer of God's grace. Of his fullness, we have all received, and grace upon grace. We have a fuller realization of God's grace to unworthy sinners. 
And finally, our fourth thing we get from the incarnation, a fuller representation of God's character. John says, he has explained him. The Son has made God known. He has revealed him to us. He has explained him. We see God in the face of Jesus Christ. One commentator has argued that John is using word, or or the Greek word logos, in a way similar to the way the word wisdom is used in the Old Testament. It's personified. Wisdom speaks and works and wills. Wisdom calls out, and you will do well to listen to her voice. I won't get into all of his arguments at the moment, but let me just leave it with his thesis. With the word logos, John is pointing to Jesus as the law fulfilled. All of God's word fulfilled. Craig Keener says this, Christ is the full embodiment of the law. The actual model of lived out commandments in flesh. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we have received grace upon grace. By our misdeeds, we have built up a great debt of punishment which we owe to God. But Jesus Christ has built up infinite merit by his keeping of the law for us. And he has freely bestowed that merit on those who come to him in faith. So what are your New Year's resolutions? You're going to stop doing something that you've been doing too much of. You're going to do something less that you've been doing too much of. You're going to start doing something that you've desired to do for a long time. You know it would be good for you. You're going to do something more than you've been doing it because that would be good for you. But all of that, brothers and sisters, can wait till tomorrow, can it? For this moment, I just want you to stop. Stop thinking of all you must do to become a better you. Stop thinking of all you must do and stop doing to become better. Stop and rest in Christ's work for you. Rest in His perfect presence with you by His Holy Spirit. Rest in His perfect righteousness which was given for you. Rest in His perfect grace which has been poured out upon you. Stop and rest and know that because of Jesus, God has lavished His love upon you and He will never stop. Amen. Father, we thank you for this grace that you have lavished upon us, your people. And we pray that you would use it to melt our hearts. Melt our hearts that we might live with an ever-present understanding and awareness that you are with us. So that we would live for your glory. Not in fear of sinning because then you would be angry with us, but with full knowledge that you have already received us and given us your favor because of Christ. Help us to live for you. We, we long to please you. We long to know you more, to trust you more, to obey you more. We pray by your Holy Spirit you would enable us to overcome sin more and more each day. You would enable us to love our brothers and sisters as we ought to. That you would enable us to live for your glory as we ought to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.